Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. I mean, I think it all comes back to trying to minimize circadian disruption, right? Like we want to try to create as much circadian alignment as possible. So that's eating while the sun is up biasing a bulk of our calories earlier in the day, you know, ending, you know, finishing our last calorie a couple hours to three hours before we intend to sleep, stabilizing when we go to bed and when we wake up, doing that as often as we can, getting a lot of water, you know, really trying to minimize alcohol intake, putting nourishing, nutrient-dense food in our body, really important, you know, meeting our sleep need. You know, these are just like kind of the basic stuff, you know, and, and I would say, you know, working out, getting exercise daily, movement, really, really important. Um, trying to, you know, pay attention to that sedentary behavior and, and, and not let that, you know, creep into the hours and hours over the course of the day. You know, so it's just like a lot of the typical things. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and today we are talking all about how to maximize recovery. We're going to learn how to recover like a boss and how to optimize human performance and potential. And my guest today is Kristen Holmes. And man, this woman is a powerhouse. She is the VP of Performance Science at Whoop. And just to give you a little bit of background on her, she is a three-time All-American, two-time Big Ten Athlete of the Year at the University of Iowa, competing in both field hockey and basketball, 2021 University of Iowa Hall of Fame inductee, a seven-year member of the U.S. National field hockey team, and one of the most successful coaches in Ivy League history, having won 12 league titles in the 13 seasons that she was at national championship at Princeton University. Kristen has an MIT slogan, artificial intelligence certificate, an MA in psychology and sports performance, a BA in political science from the University of Iowa. She's a PhD candidate from the University of Queensland. And Kristen serves as a science advisor to Lovell's Health, to Arena Labs, to Evolve Leadership. She's an performance ambassador to Liminal Collective and sits on the tactical leadership board of Sports Innovation Lab. Yeah. She's kind of a big deal. So we talk, we talk all about how we can recover like bosses. So we talk about HRV, heart rate variability, what it is, what affects it. We talk about light and light inputs. We talk about sleep and sleep recovery, sleep debt, sleep wake timing. What do you do when you have a really big event coming up? There's a big wedding or a big reunion or something. We talk about the menstrual uh, implications on metabolism and recovery. We talk about insulin resistance. Gosh, there's just 
there's something for everybody in this conversation. And if I'm being totally honest, we didn't even get to all of the topics that I wanted to get to with her, but just the 90 minutes flew by. She's game for, for a second uh, interview. So we're going to do that. We're going to try and figure that out and coordinate another time together. But in the meantime, this is like the foundational basics of circadian rhythm training. And of course, we take a women, we talk a lot about women and include women of all ages, perimenopause, in our fertile years, etc. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. So before I just before we get there, I do want to make sure that I just shout out one of you, my community, my Bettys, uh, reading out a review that came in from Apple Podcasts from the US. This is Bel Campo. And Bel Campo says, I love you, Dr. Stephanie. This is my go-to podcast, my mood booster, my health insight, my helpful tips, my lifestyle inspiration, my gym listen, my road trip muse, my favorite walking podcast. I could go on and on, but I love all of it. And Dr. Stephanie has got such a good thing going with this podcast. I'm 24 and I love it. So it just goes to show that the preventative health measures and hormonal expertise is very applicable to women in their 20s and not just women in perimenopause and menopausal stages of life. Belcampo, thank you so much. And I love that you are 24 and listening to this show. Like, man, what a competitive advantage. And so if any of you are finding uh, value in the show, I would also encourage you, it's a free way to support the work that we do, to leave a five-star rating either on iTunes or Spotify, or if you want to leave a review on iTunes, I see them all, the good, bad, and the ugly. So please do so if you feel that this is bringing value to your life in some way. All right, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kristen Holmes. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. 
We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family. And over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right. Kristen Holmes, VP of Sports Performance and Recovery at Whoop. I am just thrilled to welcome you to the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to to chat with you today. I've been following you for such a long time and just a, such a fan of your work and uh, just, yeah, I appreciate everything that you do to educate us on all, all things kind of health and performance. So thank you. Thank you. I I really appreciate that. And I wanted you on the show really because we're going to do a deep dive in recovery. And one of the things that I've observed in myself and also with a lot of the um individuals that I've counseled and cared for over many years is that fatigue management, uh, recovery management, let's say, may be the single greatest indicator of whether we're not going to be successful in our progress in terms of whatever Mm -hmm. our fitness and exercise goals might be. Um, And as we, at least for me, uh, as we move into our 40s, which is where I am now, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think about a lot is injury prevention. And this is Mm -hmm. why recovery becomes so important because we want to be thinking about progress, but also we also don't want to be taken out by an injury because an injury in your forties or fifties, let's say is markedly different than an injury, let's say in your twenties or thirties. And even then, you know, the arbitrary timeline that you set for yourself where you're like, I'm going to be better by Saturday, (laughs) Saturday (laughs) comes and goes and you're like, what the hell? Not so much. Not not Mm. so much. Yeah, exactly. So I, I've, my observation has been, and this has been my own experience as well, is that recovery is more psychologically diff- difficult than, than sort of psyching yourself up for like a big workout. And so I thought we might start with um, what are, you know, maybe defining recovery, why that's so important mm-hmm. for any exercise, or even if it's not an exercise goal, even if it's not mm-hmm. a personal goal, but why this is relevant for personal and professional goals. And then maybe we can start to parse apart some of the individual components of recovery. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful place to start, you know, and and I and I actually love starting with definitions, because I think that gives us a framework for how to think about our behaviors. Um, and I and I like to define recovery as our capacity to adapt in a functional way to external stress. And I and I think like when we when we really break down, okay, are we actually adapting in a functional way? We can then start to unpack, okay, well, what does functional actually mean to me? And that's where you can really decide, well, who do I want to be in the world? And actually asking some of these bigger questions. You know, if I want to be able to adapt 
uh, to life stress in a functional way. What is that actually required of me in terms of just my daily behaviors and in terms of how I show up in the world? And I, so I kind of think about it as, all right, if, if this is, if, if functional adaptation is a goal, um, what, what do I need to have foundationally in order to enable that? So I, I think from my perspective, you know, so if I back up and think about, okay, you know, what, what are my values? Like, I want to, I want to, I want to live my values with joy and energy. What are that I care about? I want to be able to be as present uh, and engaged with my children um, as I possibly can. I want to be patient and tolerant and I want to be kind. I want to be able to, uh, you know, share my, my, my skills or whatever my, you know, what my, whatever my skills are, I want to be able to, you know, share those with, with the world. Um, so how do I kind of back back into that? And and I think one of those one of the components is is be able to kind of functionally adapt to stress, you know, as as often as possible. And and what that really means is that I have to kind of manage my stress very proactively. So that is there's a sleep component to that um, that basically um, enables me to adapt to stress in a functional way. Um, there's also a training component to that. You know, in my um, training. A- appropriately relative to my um my my capacity right and and how am i thinking about that how am i monitoring that um so i think that you know recovery is more than just recovery i think it's really figuring out okay who do i actually want to be in the world and how do i back into that <laughs> so really it's a, def- a definition of core values right first we want to understand who what we stand yeah. for and what we don't and then what are some of the pillars that sort of stack up? What are some of the bricks that I can lay that's going to mm-hmm. allow me to be fu- to fully express who I am in whatever capacity that might be? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and people have different goals and, and levels, you know, and but I think to your earlier point, like if we're injured or sick, it's really hard to live our values. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really hard to kind of show up in, in the world in the way that we want to. So I think at a fundamental level, you know, I think we, you know, I think most folks are really interested in not getting sick and not getting injured, right? <laughs> as a, as a, as a path to be able to, you know, live their values, you know, as intentionally as possible for as consistently as possible. You mentioned managing stress, and I just wanted to double click on this a moment before we sort of get into some of the components of of um, recovery management and fatigue management because I think this is so important. One of the things that I find, I see this more often, maybe discussed in the online space, as if you know, stress is often discussed like cortisol is the devil, stress is the devil. We want to, we want to avoid this at all costs. And certainly overdoing it as we're, as we're going to be talking about can certainly impact our recovery and our ability to perform the next time that we're doing, you know, whatever activity we've set out for ourselves. And I think, you know, two truths can be possible at the same time. Stress is actually very important for us to grow. I think that, you know, people use the word hormesis. We're starting to see that word used a little bit more, but I, I like I, I I do want to reframe the different types of stressors, right? We have use stressors, we have distressors. And I, I I thought maybe you could speak into that a little bit, seeing as though you are the VP of sports performance and sort of knowing a little bit about how stress can yeah. impact our, our ability to adapt. Why? How can stress be a good thing? Yeah, um, I completely agree that I think society has kind of put this uh, weird spin on stress and, and made it just bad, you know, that we should be inoculating ourselves from stress. Um, and, and I, I totally disagree with that. Um, I think it's really about the number one thing is, is I think framing stress. Uh, and I, and I think how we frame it, if we are, and I'll use an example of like a stressor that could be good or bad, depending on how we frame it. 
um, to use cold, for example, cold immersion. If I'm framing, if I'm going into a 40 degree cold tub, um, which for most humans is going to feel really uncomfortable um, and their body is going to feel really unsafe in that temperature. Um, but if I go into it saying, okay, this stressor is going to help me, it's going to, I'm going to, it's going to, I'm going to release dopamine. Um, it's going to help my immune system. It's going to, so I basically frame that stressor as positive. That will end up being a hormetic stress, a hormetic stressor in that it doesn't kill me, but it's making me stronger. So assuming that you're staying within the parameters of safety and all of that, very important. Um, you're not getting hyperthermia. Like this is about just like, you know, a couple minutes in this cold, you know, this cold tub with the goal of promoting, you know, positive stress. Now, if I were to go into that same situation where I get, I get pushed off a boat into 40 degree water and I'm trying to survive, that's going to be a, a, a bad stressor, right? I'm going to perceive that stress as negative. As a result, it's going to manifest negatively in my system and probably not be um, a positive uh, response or adaptation. So our mindset going into the stress is really important. And I think you bring up such an important point that we need to start to think about stress in our life as an opportunity for growth. <laughs> um, and I think it's important to note that I think folks have uh, a different fault kind of mindset around um, stress in general. And that would be something that's worth unpacking at a kind of individual level is like, all right, how positive and optimistic do I feel about the future? Right. And you can kind of look at Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, which is great. You know, there's people kind of either go left or right. Um, but you want to try to go, you know, if growth oriented and, and thinking, you know, positively about the future is to the right. We want to try to get to that as much as possible. So, and that's something that you can kind of train. Um, and Sean Aker's work uh, is absolutely amazing. It'll be worth linking. Um, he was a Harvard professor and done a ton of work around happiness, um, but really gives a lot of really useful uh, tips and, and tricks on how to kind of frame the world in a more positive light. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, entry points are, are awe and gratitude, um, but kind of that is a, a pathway to kind of improve our our perception of just the world around us and look at the the world through a more you know positive lens. Um, I think helps us kind of think about stress more as an, an opportunity for growth as opposed to something that is going to kill us. Um, so yeah, so that's I guess a quick frame framing of of stress. W wonderfully said, and I think you know a lot of us you know a lot of people listen to this podcast and others because they want to become stronger and more resilient in some way. Mm -hmm. And I think that there can be sort of this paradoxical you know, I want to be stronger, I want to be fitter, I want to be more resilient, either mentally or physically, but avoid the conditions that actually create that strength, right? Like the cold therapy, yeah. right? It's like the cold yeah. therapy, you know, it's uncomfortable every time I get into every time I get into my bathtub with that ice that I've dragged in from the gas station, I'm like, this is gonna suck. <laughs> every time totally. I'm like, do I really need to do it this time? I already did it last time. You, know, you have that little like all these little, you know, but I, know. I, I, I get know. in anyway. And afterwards, I always feel amazing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, but these are the conditions that actually create some of that grit, right? That cellular grit, whether it's mental grit, physical grit. So I think leaning into yeah. uh, leaning into the conditions that actually forge strength, right? I think mm -hmm. is is very important. And some of those yeah. some of those things are very stressful. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of think about it like a like a 
I always think about it like a bank account. You know, either you're either making a deposit or you're making a withdrawal, and and you've got you know your bank account is resilience. Like you want to make as many deposits as you can. You know, and it's it's these little behaviors that really add up over time. You know, that are going to either upgrade your resilience levels, uh, you know, i.e. reduce your, uh, you know, your propensity or chance for injury, uh, or, or sickness, um, or, or not, you know, and, and I, and, and nothing is black and white, but I think there are some things that, that are going to, you know, be up without a doubt a deposit and without a doubt a withdrawal. And I think the more, uh, and this is really, this is the crux of your work and, and hopefully my work too is, is trying to help people understand, okay, how do I actually apply my effort? If my goal is to reduce injury and reduce sickness and, uh, you know, be as healthy as humanly possible and show up for life in a way that feels good to me, what are these deposits that I need to make every day? Awesome. Well said. All right, let's talk a little, let's dive into some of the components of recovery. I've heard you mm-hmm. on your uh, podcast, on the Whoop podcast, we'll shout, shout out to the Whoop podcast, we'll make sure that that's in the show notes as well. Thank you. Uh, you talk about HRV, and this is something mm, that yeah. I have been, I have been, I have, I love that this is so mainstream now. When I was in clinical practice, I had an HRV machine, and this was part of my intake. Uh, we would, it was sort of a, you know, now there's so many more advanced um, sort of technologies, but we would yeah. make the patient sit there for five minutes and like read their, <laughs> <laughs> read sort of the inputs, yeah. the autonomic inputs and whatnot. Yep. But let's talk about what HRV is and why this mm-hmm. is such a salient uh, signal, let's say, for how somebody is managing their stress. Yeah. So I think really what HRV is an amazing proxy for is to understand how you're adapting to stress. So we kind of, you asked me that definition of recovery. It's our, you know, how well are we adapting to external stress? And HRV is kind of a measure of how well you're adapting to external stress. So I think that's what makes it really powerful. It's just, it's just kind of a nice, you know, daily or weekly check-in on, on, okay, am I positively adapting or am I adapting functionally or um, and I, am I not actually adapting functionally? And um, so HRV is an amazing proxy and just high level, heart variability is a function of the heart that originates in the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system, I think, is really important to understand because this, this is where, you know, you're, you're, it's the rest and digest is the parasympathetic and the sympathetic is the fight or flight side of the uh, branch of the autonomic nervous system. And they're both kind of competing to send signals to your heart. When you are recovered and ready to go, managing energy effectively, your heart's probably going to be responsive to both inputs of the autonomic nervous system. This is going to allow you to respond and adapt your environment in a really functional way. When your heart rate variability is suppressed, that means your heart is going to be less responsive to these signals. As a result, you are going to adapt in a less functional way to your environment. So imagine those moments where, um, you know, let's just say, you know, you're underslept, you're maybe overfueled, you're underhydrated, you're probably going to have a really suppressed heart rate variability. As a result, you're that's probably going to manifest in your life in some sort of probably suboptimal way. That is, you might be less tolerant or, you know, less optimistic. Like you can't turn on that mindset that's going to allow you to kind of look at a situation as an opportunity. And as opposed, you know, as, as, a, as a result, you're kind of seeing it as, you know, it's kind of that le- glass, you know, is, is, isn't how, is, half full. Yeah. Instead of half, half empty. Yeah. <laughs> You're half empty as opposed to glass half full. You kind of have that like default, like negative mindset. So, um, so I think, you know, heart rate variability is just this awesome shot or window into how, how our behaviors are either laddering up positively, uh, and enabling that functional adaptation 
or not. And when we talk about ranges, so I'm going to out myself here and mm-hmm. say that I have a relatively low HRV. I can I can modify it. You mentioned a few things that really, like hi, my hydration really does impact um, my HRV mm-hmm. levels. If I've gone to, you know, my husband and I have started going to this sort of Scandinavian spa where you just sort of go into a barrel sauna and then you do cold plunge and you just keep, you know, you continue to alternate. And so a day of that, you know, four or five hours of that, the next couple of days, my HRV is very, very high, but typically my HRV is very low. So I have a, I have a couple of questions for you. Well, I'll say low relative to other people where we're all checking and comparing our HRVs to each other, which is the wrong thing to do for the, for the okay. record. Right? So, so our general population averages. So, you know, generally speaking, so on the WHOOP platform for men, um, so for 25-year-olds, the average HRV is 78. 35-year-olds, it's 60. 45-year-olds, it's 48. And 55-year-olds, it's 44. Just okay. to give you a sense of just, so this That's is just men, is that population data. Yeah. So this is, I just gave you all um, female ranges. Female ranges. Okay. So I've heard generally you should try to have an HRV that's a, about your age, um, but that sort of goes contrary to sort of what your uh can you read those numbers for me just again? I sure. Yep, yeah. I sure can. Yep. So for for twenty five year olds, the average HRV for women is seventy eight. For thirty five year old women, it's sixty. For forty five year olds, it's forty eight, and for fifty five year olds, it's forty four. All right. So your girl here is still and they're still course- coming in under the average. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, but I, you know, part of it, I, I know part of it, like part of it is just me being able to process, you know, residue, let's say stressful residue that still resides mm. in my nervous system, which I'm actively without a doubt, actively working on. But there are things yep. that I've, that I've noticed that really do help it. So the hot and cold mm-hmm. manipulation, mm-hmm. um, how well I've slept, of course, that's a huge one. And then my hydration levels, I do, uh, I do mm-hmm. also see, uh, big changes there. Do we, do we think that HRV is sort of to some degree genetically determined? Like, are there some people that, uh, I'd like to maybe excuse my, excuse myself for working on my stress here, but are there some people that are just going to have a low HRV no matter what, or I still have, I still have a lot of personal work to do is what, what are we, what are we thinking, Kristen? <laughs> so HRV is modifiable. Yeah. <laughs> now it is going to decrease with age. There's no question. I know. Sorry. Not, I, can't you I know, I know, but you, you have to understand that it is genetic and women in, in general are going to have a slightly less, a slightly lower HRV than men. And that's more to do with heart size than anything. Um, but there is a genetic component that gives you kind of your baseline entry point. Um, but that said, like just even what happened, you know, when you're in your mama's belly can impact your kind of baseline heart rate ability. Any early childhood trauma that you might have experienced is going to impact kind of your baseline HRV. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, I know some folks in my life who have been, you know, struggled with alcohol for, you know, decades and then get sober, come onto the platform and they have like an eight HRV, you know, and they're in their forties. So, um, it's, uh, you know, your prior behaviors are going to influence kind of your starting, like when you first start measuring heart rate variability, it's a product of kind of everything that's led up to that moment is going to impact. And then really, I think the focus for folks is, you know, can I make just small improvements over time, you know, and I think back to that little bank account, you know, there's going to be behaviors like you mentioned, 
you know, Dr. Stephanie, like you mentioned, the hot and the cold and minding your hydration. And there's some other like really important ones that we can talk about too that are going to put, you know, deposits in the HRE bank account and aren't detracting. Um, but it's like all these little behaviors kind of add up over time and are going to um, and should improve your ability to respond and adapt to external stress, which is going to be reflected in that HRB metric. Okay, great. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I'm just looking at these numbers again. I wrote them down when you told me the second mm-hmm. time. So we, we what we're seeing here at 25, it's 78, 35, it's 60, 45, it's 48, 55, it's 44. We're seeing this sort of stepwise decline in HRV, which signifies yeah. to me that there's less you you might tend to run a bit more sympathetic dominant. Would that be a fair mm-hmm. categor- uh, categorization that, there? That's exactly right. So, yeah, and that's where, you know, in your opening kind of, um, you know, monologue, you were, you were talking about just, you know, stress being good or bad, you know, and, and that's where, you know, if you are not breaking up this moments of these moments of stress throughout your day, you end up being, you know, sympathetically, you know, activated, like your sympathetic branch, your nervous system is chronically activated. That is when you will see deleterious effects on your heart rate variability. So you want to make sure that again, stress isn't bad, but you want to give yourself, yourself appropriate levels of rest that are proportional to that stress as proactively as possible. So oftentimes people go through, you know, six weeks of just chronic activation and are like, okay, now I'm going to rest. I go on vacation and I get deathly ill, right? Like that's your body is coming down from that stress. And I think there's a term for this. You might know it's sickness. We see this with, I see this in my surgeon and military population. I got sick after every set of exams, every, like after my board exams, I was sick for weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Your body is, is just mobilizing all the resources to be able to kind of do this thing that you need to do, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're just driving your heart rate is, you know, kind of chronic elevated and, um, and you kind of get through it and you're like, all right, I did it. And then finally, like you come down and like the dopamine and the adrenaline and the cortisol, the epinephrine, and like everything just, and that's when your body is like, okay, we don't need to activate anymore. Now like, let's deal with all of the, like the fact that I haven't been taking care of myself for six weeks. Now let's try to like get ourselves back to homeostasis here. And that's where your body is basically shuts down, like forces you to shut down so it can kind of you know, do all of the recovery and regeneration that needs to happen that you've neglected over the last six weeks. Okay. So I also think that looking at these ages, we sort of see the stepwise decline. This is also why recovery actually becomes more and more important as we age for that fatigue yeah. and injury Proactive management. recovery. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So let's, let's dive yeah. into some of the, let's dive into some of the parameters or some of the verticals maybe uh, that can help to increase mm-hmm. HRV. So we're increasing our mm-hmm. the balance, if you will, of parasympathetic and, and, and sympathetic function. Um, we've ta- we've mm-hmm. sort of danced around a few of them, cold therapy, but I actually wanted to start with light because I know that this is a really big uh, part of some of the research that you do, and I've heard you speak yeah. so eloquently on it. So, how does how does light, let's say, affect our um, our our circadian rhythms? How does it affect our ability yeah. to recover? What does what does yeah. that look like? Yeah, light is the most powerful input um, in that it really tells our system what it is that it needs to do at different time points during the day, and so basically. You know, we've got this natural light-dark cycle, right? So during the day, it's, you know, light out, it's it's bright out. During the night, 
it's dark out. And our system, our, our cells, our tissues, our, the organs in our body are all basically kind of just imagine they're just feeding off of these cues that we that we give it. Um, and and light is that that big one. So it's basically when we see light first thing in the morning, it wakes our system up. It's like, all right, time to go cells, tissues and organs like we're, we're fired up, we're ready to go, we're ready to tackle the day, we release cortisol, like there's all sorts of hormonal things happening. Um, if we deprive ourselves of light in the morning, that is, we don't get light, our system doesn't know what to do. And thus begins this kind of, um, I think, syndrome called circadian misalignment. Now, of course, one day, not a big deal. But if we're chronically missing that bolus of morning light, we will become desynchronized. And your circadian rhythm might adapt but it doesn't mean that you're performing off optimally or that you've adapted in a functional or healthy way. Um, you will have, you will adapt to a lower level of functioning. You will increase your risk of disease. You will increase your risk of, of injury. Um, so that bolus of light in the morning is so important. And at the other end of the, the spectrum, once the sun goes down, we need to do our very best to restrict our light. We have not adapted to blue light after the sun goes down. And I think that we haven't evolved to adapt to blue light after the sun goes down. And I think that this, you know, modernity makes it so difficult, right? It sabotages us at every corner in terms of our health, right? And and I think light is, and, and just having access to light 24 seven is one of the um, biggest problems facing uh, human health. I think that, that we can experience like that, that we're kind of as a as a society we're we're faced with. And, you know, people are watching TV, they're um, you know, engaged on their smartphones and their iPads, and they just get this blue light. And as a result, you don't um feel sleepy when you need to feel sleepy. Um, you bypass that melatonin release or you push past that melatonin re release. And once you push past that melatonin release, now all of a sudden your body's like, oh no, I'm not safe anymore. And I need to mobilize resources because I need a fight and I need to flight. Um, so as a result, like you end up, you know, basically infusing your body with stress um, and, and kind of all these, these chemicals and hormones that are basically telling your body it's time to be awake. So again, the misalignment continues, right? So, um, so this concept of circadian alignment or misalignment is, is, you know, can be found in the literature. There's lot, tons and tons of papers, um, as you mentioned, this is a bulk of my research is kind of in this area of, 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 of circadian alignment and what behaviors kind of ladder up to alignment versus not. Um, but it's well established in the literature that this alignment is really important. And one of the best ways to create alignment is um, kind of sync up with the natural light dark cycles as much as humanly possible. Okay, so I have some questions. Um, yes. I have many, I have many questions mm -hmm. on this. Um, first, Good. um, when so this summer I was invited to uh, speak at Mind Valley University and we went to Estonia, beautiful country. Oh my goodness, the mm. food! I was so delighted to meet the people there. Uh, wow. In the summertime, the sunsets at <laughs> and my my clock did not know this. My circadian clock was not used to this. Set at eleven o'clock at night. Like it was bright in the sky until 11 and we had blackout blinds in our hotel, but that sun was up at three 30 or four in the morning. Yeah. So when you are 
and this is maybe a question more for like the extremes of the earth. I'm thinking about this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, individuals in Finland and Sweden and Denmark yeah. and Norway. And even, even in France, when we were in Paris, the sun was still up at 10 at night. <laughs> I could, I mean, I'm from, I'm, I'm Toronto. So I'm, I'm in Toronto. So the sun here, you know, in the summertime, it's still light at about nine o'clock, right? So nine mm. o'clock, it sort of sets. And then, you know, I'm, I'm an East Coast girl, you know, so like New York, Boston, like sort of that yeah. whole Eastern corridor, like we're all kind of the same in terms of when the sun. So when I was yeah. in Paris, I was shocked that it was still light outside at 10. We were walking home from dinner mm-hmm. and it was 10 or 1030 at night and the sun was still it was still out there. Yeah. So when we when you're talking about circadian alignment, is it uh, that we are trying to align with the sun irrespective of where we are. So if you're someone mm-hmm. in Estonia where you have five hours essentially where the sun is not mm-hmm. around, is that an ideal rhythm to get into because that's the geography, the geographical location mm-hmm. that you are in? Or is it, I want to try and get you know a certain amount of dark uh, over, mm-hmm. the, over the course of the day and a certain amount of light? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think this is a question that, you know, I don't know that we've arrived at the the perfect answer, but I think what we know, I, you know, I did this huge study with, um, with army Alaska. Um, so looking at a really, uh, you know, you, it's the most extreme kind of place in terms of light dark and, um, and kind of, you know, long bouts of darkness, long bouts of lightness. And we do see not surprising that, um, both of these extremes seem to correlate with less positive psychological functioning. So I think there is something there that if we can kind of strive for eight-ish hours of darkness and, you know, 13 hours of light, that's probably optimal and creates the least amount of stress on our system. Um, So I think it, Ideally, um, you kind of just try to stay inside that schedule, um, you know, with an hour left or right across the entire year. Across the year. So this is okay. Mm -hmm. So the other thing with with Estonia, I was talking to some of the locals Mm because I couldn't believe that the sun was up so early and went to bed. Yeah, they were saying that in the wintertime, it's actually the opposite. So it'll right. ri- the sun will rise at about 11. And it sort of sets at about 330 or four. Yeah. So does it sort of even out over the course of a year? Or this is something that we want to try to be achieving on a daily basis, like the cycle is more of a daily diurnal, seven or eight hours, as you're saying, or does it sort of even out over the course of a year? I think it's diurnal. And we want to try to um yeah, maintain some sort of consistency across the year. Okay. What about, okay, so same question for shift workers. Mm -hmm, And then I have mm -hmm. a question about chronotypes. So shift workers are, you know, the nurses that are working three days on, two days off, where their circadian rhythms, let's say, are potentially, Mm -hmm. and we know that, you know, we love our nurses, we love our shift workers, but they have the, they have the poorest health outcomes, right? I mean, I I think that they, I I think shift work has been identified as a carcinogen and, you know, all cause mortality. So talk to us about what are some strategies that someone who doesn't have regular sleep wake cycles, like a nurse, let's say, uh, what can, what can they be doing, if any, anything to sort of optimize their light bolus or their light exposure? Yeah, I think, establishing some sort of like consistent regular routine around these cues that we know are going to impact the circadian rhythm. So, you know, ideally eating a bulk of your calories during the biological day. So that means if you're waking up 
from a you know your kind of sleep maybe at 3 p.m. You want to try to get in a bulk of your calories from 3 p.m. to let's say 7 p.m. once the sun goes down. And then, you know, during your night shift, just trying to, you know, really clean lots of protein, you know, just trying to not put too much stress on your system during what would be your biological night. So while you are can't get away from having to be up during the night, you can pull the food lever um, to try to at least stay within the bounds of what your body is expecting during that time. So I think as a, if you were thinking about that, okay, what's the big principle here? It's try to try to do what you normally would do during the day and apply a lot of that to the night, if that may, or, 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 or keep, keep what you do during the day, during the day as often as possible. So food, exercise would be another one. You want to try to fit that in, you know, during, you know, after you wake up, for example, for some folks, even before their shift, after, as their shift ends, that could be a, a good time. Oh, um, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're going to yeah. be ending at like six or seven in the morning, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they can, they can work out. Um, you know, it's, it's tough though. Cause you want to try to, it, it just, it just depends on the human, right. And, and what their circumstances are. I think exercise, getting in your exercise, um, at any time is probably is, is, is good. Um, you know, we, we know that that is just such a powerful longevity, um, for, uh, a powerful lever for longevity. And I think when we, you know, even if it's kind of at a, what we'd consider a suboptimal time, it, it's better than not doing exercise. So, uh, figuring out obviously exercise when those constraints is really important, but I think food is probably one of the the biggest levers to offset, on any regular sleep wake time. Um, so trying to book and then in, bookend the food, like to sort of line up either with like dinner, let's say if it's the beginning of your or shift breakfast. Or, or breakfast, mm-hmm. if it's at the end of your shift. Okay, cool. Yeah. But I think like eating, you know, all throughout the night is, is one of the worst things that you can do. And, and probably one of the, the main reasons, um, metabolic dysfunction is so high, uh, with shift workers is, is because, you know, they're eating big old meals when their body's literally just not primed to metabolize food. Like we're just, we're just not set up to digest food at night. We're just not. And as a result, it puts huge amounts of stress on our body. So they should basically be paid more is what you're saying. Oh, <laughs> for, like for a the sacrifice. More. Like yeah. it is such, yeah. Like I, I just like these humans. Yeah. We we're analyzing data from, we did a study with UCSF and Las Palmas uh, in Texas, you know, frontline healthcare clinicians, like 370 folks. And we were trying to really test like a coaching platform to, around these kind of this, these principles of circadian alignment. So really thinking more intentionally about light, um, you know, uh, minimizing light in the lead up to, to bed and then getting a ball of light once they wake up just to try to, yeah. And it, it's when I just look at the the data, like just their baseline relative to age match cohorts. It's, oh, it's like my heart like breaks, honestly, yeah. like these, these folks cannot. Yeah. They're just like heroes truly like in every sense of the word. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna 
It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So I've had Dr. Michael Bruce on the show a couple of times, um, mm-hmm. very well known for his work on chronotypes. Mm. And yeah. uh, I forget all the animals, uh, Michael, I'm sorry. It's like lion, bear. I think there's a dolphin in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's another <laughs> one. Um, so my question is, um, so chronotypes, my understanding of chronotypes is it's not that, you know, or night and maybe a night owl. Um, mm-hmm. is that you're not completely switched, but these are just variances of by a few hours, right? So I, oh goodness, I for, I'm so sorry, Dr. Bruce, I forget what, what my, my name it's is, like a, but, a, but I'm, a, the, I'm the, I'm the one that likes to get up early. I'm the one that likes to get up early. I like to okay. get up early right. and then I like to be in bed early. So like I turn into a pumpkin. I like to joke, like I turn into a pumpkin about eight 30. I need to be like starting my routine at like 8 PM yeah, and nine yeah. o'clock. I really want to be in bed by nine. Um, and, but there's others who really do like, you know, a lot of creatives, uh, we know that mm-hmm. they often like artists and things of that nature mm-hmm. like to actually, they're, they're most creative in the evening. Mm-hmm. Prefer. Um, yeah. They have a preference for they have a, just they evening have preference. work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my, so my question around chronotypes, um, is more, maybe it's more around my, my own family dynamics, like AKA asking for a friend. So I have, we were talking in the pre-chat, I have, uh, an almost teenager, I guess he's a tween, he's almost 13 and I have an 11 year old. And so mm-hmm. what I'm noticing with my 13 year old is that he is now his penchant for staying up later. He's, he's, his, gar- his appetite for staying up later is increasing mm-hmm. and just understand Same with my son. Same mm-hmm. with your son. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what we know, we do know in sort of the teenage years, there does seem to be this like phasic shift in terms of how, mm-hmm. you know, what our chronotypes are. Um, what are some of the things that, um, well, my question is, is this unavoidable? Is this just mm. something that they have to do as part of their development that we don't, mm-hmm. you know, maybe understand the reason why, or maybe we do, and you can explain that. And then how, um, for someone like myself who likes to get up early, that obviously precludes a means getting to bed early. How do, uh, let's say the moms and the dads who have sort of different chronotypes from their Mm -hmm. family members, how do we sort of navigate that? And then I'll ask you some questions on metabolism in a moment, but I want to, I want to talk about chronotypes and maybe you can speak on your, on your own personal experience or what you, what you've seen from the data from, do we have any data in terms of, is this preventable? Like, can we just get our teenagers like to not go to bed at midnight? Is that, is that a possibility or, or am I just wishful thinking? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there, it's definitely a light issue, right? So, you know, for, I think what's, okay. So, so I, I really prescribe to Ken, I, Ken Wright's I think work, um, Dr. Ken Wright, he's a, he's a circadian physiologist and has done a lot of this work around chronotypes. And he has some interesting studies where, you know, he throws a bunch of healthy adults. So these are folks that don't have sleep disorders or, um, you know, circadian disorders or anything like that, um, kind of throws them on a mountain and, um, and, and basically, you know, within a few days, they're all falling asleep within 30 minutes of one another. Okay. So there's, there's no, there's no artificial light, right? So they're just on a mountain, you know, kind of camping. So it, it there seems, and when you look at like a lot of the hunter gatherer uh, kind of uh, research and data, it's you know everyone's kind of falling asleep within a half an hour of one another. So I'm not sure that I really ascribe to this like 
like this wild, you know, discrepancy between between humans in terms of I think a lot of it is is kind of preference that you develop over time and and habit. And um, I mean, one thing that we do know is night owls die sooner because I think you're going outside of the bounds of what your body uh, wants to do, and you're kind of overriding those endogenous preferences. Um, and kind of making choices that, um, you know, to stay up later. Uh, and we know this of shift workers as well, like all the data that exists around, um, you know, just some of the health, um, the de- deteriorations in health that happen cardiovascularly and metabolically um, when folks are, you know, up during the night, uh, during the biological night and, um, and, and kind of sleeping during the day. So, um, and I think the other piece of research I think that's really compelling is we know that if you're viewing light between artificial light between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., it has a pro-depressive effect in that it will negatively impact your dopamine system next day, your motivation, your reward system. Like it just it will not function um, as it should. So I think those are a couple examples of that. Of okay, if we can abstract from that 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. result um, in, in that beautiful study on mood circuitry and 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 uh, mood and brain circuitry, um, we know that probably after 11 p.m., there's something negative happening. So I think even for children, you know, 1130 is probably not the time. I would say for, 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 for teenagers, probably, you know, the 1030 range is probably optimal, which is a little later than what it would be for, I think, for adults. Um, so all that to say, I think that um, these chronotypes are not as wildly, uh, the, you know, kind of our, our variable, our, our night, our sleep-wake time um, de- desires are, are not, uh, endogenous preferences are not wildly different, um, and that we there are some real del- deleterious effects that happen after, after 11 p.m. Um, so we know that it's got to be somewhere before that. <laughs> Yeah, and I've heard I've heard Andrew Huberman talk about this as well, like this 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. Mm. You know, if you have this, if you wake up and you just even just the moment that you check your phone, you know, you just uh, look I at know. the phone and just that blue light because it's so close to your eyes yep. uh, is going to have sort of deleterious effects, as you said, on the dopaminergic mm-hmm. serotonin mm-hmm. and you know melatonin mm-hmm. release, and it'll also mm-hmm. preclude you from just falling back to sleep. You know, sometimes yeah. we sometimes you just wake up, you just come out of the sleep cycle, and you just, I mean, I've, yeah. I've noticed my, I'm like. I'm awake. All right. And I'll just close my eyes and go right back yeah. to sleep. But if I were to yeah. get up or look at the clock or look at my phone, which isn't in my bedroom mm-hmm. anyway, but let's pretend that it was, mm-hmm. um, that's just going to be, um, you know, the outcomes of that are just going to be far worse than, yeah. than it just sort creates of- this like vicious cycle too. You know, yeah. it, it's like, yeah. Um, yeah, I think to your point, like it, you know, it fragments your sleep, but I think even like when we're pushing past our pressure for sleep and let's say we do finally, we fall asleep at 1am, we've been up watching Netflix or like, you know, or doing something creative and wonderful, like, um, you know, falling asleep at 1am are the potential for a more fragmented sleep experience is higher, right? Because we, we, we've got all of that cortisol kind of flooding, you know, our system, our baseline kind of heart rate is going to be revving a little higher. As a result, you're not dropping into these deeper stages of sleep. Um, you might be so sleep deprived that you're getting some sort of rebound, you know, deeper sleep, but again, like that's going to impact your architecture tomorrow and then the next day, the next day. So it just, like I said, you end up within this kind of vicious cycle where you're really not getting healthy sleep. Yeah. I remember it was Matt Walker's book, I think, or maybe I heard him somewhere say this. He said, mm. you know, midnight is middle of the night. And I was like, well, yeah. that's really simple. And 
so obvious. <laughs> like I, why yeah. Did, yeah, you know, it's the, know. And it should be the middle of your sleep cycle. And I remember yeah. my grand, my grandmother, uh, you know, bless her, miss her so much, but she, she used to say things mm-hmm. like, you know, an hour before mid, how did she say it? It was an hour before midnight is equivalent to two after something, something like that. I'm messing it up, but it was like an hour, the hour, the one hour of sleep that you get prior to midnight is equivalent to two afterwards. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think she that's wasn't, right. you know, t- quite right on t- in terms of like, you know, deep sleep and REM sleep. Like she wasn't, you know, she's a Lebanese immigrant, you know, but she, but she would always, <laughs> talk, but that was sort of her wisdom. It was like, get yeah. more sleep before midnight than you get after. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm. And she would clean the house with vinegar. You know, she would do all these things. She would moisturize her skin with olive oil. And I was like, you know, she's ahead of her time. This woman had, some, this woman was onto something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, let's talk about some of the metabolic implications of, uh, I know we've been talking about uh, light and, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, let's talk about some of the metabolic um, implications of poor sleep, because I think that this is, um, I-, I know for myself, when I have not slept well, mm-hmm. um, my emotional regulation, I'm just calling mm-hmm. myself out here, my emotional, my, te- my, my proclivity for snapping, you know, or like mm-hmm. people to annoy me with things that would never annoy me is much higher. Um, I probably crave more crap. Like I probably just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking about chocolate maybe more than I should, or, you know, just thinking about if there's food in the house that shouldn't be there, I'm probably going to sort of be circling it, you know, like a shark for more so than I would otherwise. Like my inhibitory, you know, sort of my prefrontal cortex, it just feels like it's offline. Like I just can't inhibit Mm -hmm. some of these sort of primal desires for sweet and, you know, and my emotional regulation. Um, Talk, talk to us a little bit about um, maybe some of the uh, changes in fuel partitioning that might happen when we are sleep deprived. Yeah. So there's a lot there. Um, so basically when we are depriving ourselves of sleep, uh, our hormones, ghrelin and leptin are not going to function as they should. And this is why you kind of feel when you're sleep deprived, you're going to feel hunger, uh, more, you're going to feel like you're going to crave, uh, more, um, uh, you know, carbohydrate rich foods. Um, and a lot of that is because and it's not the sweet uh, potatoes. It's not like the complex carbs. It's I know, I know. It's, it's always a, the Kit Kat. You know? I know, exactly. It's like the gummy bears and the yeah, 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 yeah. and the Dorito chips and yeah, stuff like that. Um and that's really that's just uh because your your ghrelin and 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 leptin, you know, hormones aren't functioning as they as they normally would. So your satiety cues that are driven by leptin are are kind of not um uh you know they're they're basically the cues that they normally would take are are not there. And it, it's it's essentially your your body when it's sleep deprived, it doesn't feel safe. Um as a result you know, these hormones kind of act in wonky ways to try to create safety, right? And and if you think about emotional eating, that is your, your, um, you're trying to kind of create a safe environment, right? And obviously that's maladaptive and not healthy, uh, generally speaking, um, but that's actually what's happening. There, there is this, bi- you know, something biological going on um, in those moments that are kind of driving you toward these foods that will make you feel um, kind of more safe. Um but obviously, over time, if we continue with that pattern, um, you know, that's when it can become really unhealthy and, res- and, and you know, in real metabolic dysfunction that, you know, the, what we know is diabetes. And you're also more, um, when you're sleep deprived, you're, um, you're more insulin resistant. 
Um, so uh, this, again, you know, your blood sugar is going to be a little wonky. So you're trying to kind of balance that out um, with, you know, the food intake. And, and that's where it can, you can get these really big fluctuations in blood sugar over the course of the day that um, obviously have their own negative repercussions. Um, and I would say just as it relates to kind of circadian rhythms, your glucose tolerance is going to be higher earlier in the day. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, I think for, I think for women in particular, you want to make sure that we're having, you know, lots of good protein early in the day and that we're eating a bulk of our calories kind of earlier in the day, um, as opposed to kind of waiting until the night. And we could talk about kind of time restricted eating and fasting too, if you'd like, but, I would love um, to, yeah. I think that's, that's really important for folks to, to recognize that, you know, they're, you know, there is definitely this kind of circadian rhythm with metabolism that um, when we are aligned, we really help ourselves in terms of body composition and, you know, just just weight loss and, and energy levels. I mean, you talk a lot about energy management and um, fatigue management, you know, eating food and, and, you know, thinking about our circadian rhythms and, and kind of when we should be taking in food is, is really important. I'm so happy you brought that up because this is where I've probably changed my view on fasting um, mm-hmm. I'm, almost, I'm almost on a 180. So when fasting was sort of, you know, I think it still is a premier topic in healthcare. I think it's it's still wi- very widely discussed. But when it first came out, I was really practicing fasting like a man because, you know, there was no models for women, you know, it's like, know. you know, women Same. are, you know, so I, yeah. I would look at, I would look at some of the sort of fat people in, in the fasting world. And I was like, all right, I'm going to just delay my breakfast going to, you know, increase that 15 minutes every week. And then I'm going to make, I'm going to work up to not eating until 12 Mm o'clock. And then I would have sort of a feeding window of let's say 12 to seven or 12 to eight o'clock at night. And Mm -hmm. I am someone who typically work out, works out in the morning. Just, I know that that's not necessarily the best time to work out for strength training, but it's the time that I have. So I will usually give myself some, Mm. you know, nitrogen, like I'll, you know, have some whey or something like some kind of protein, let's say around Mm -hmm. that time. Um, And I found it very difficult to not have food to fuel my workouts. I found that my workouts were, Mm -hmm. uh, my performance was being impacted. Mm -hmm. My recovery was being impacted. I was much sore for much longer and I was miserable. I was (laughs) so (laughs) like, let's just call it what it is. I was, I was hangry. I was, I was so hungry. So I started thinking about this circadian, um, Mm -hmm. because women, you know, I think a lot about, I think a lot about cycles in general for women Mm -hmm. and how we live, you know, for, you know, we have a fertile cycle, we have cycles of creativity, Mm -hmm. we have, you know, the seasons are cycles yearly, you know, all these different things. And I started thinking a lot about this sort of diurnal or the circadian Mm -hmm. rhythm. And to your point, you just said this so beautifully around being more insulin sensitive in the morning. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, let me just play with this for like, let me just try to eat, you know, earlier in the morning or just in the peri exercise area of my Mm -hmm. life, which is the morning Mm -hmm. uh, and then cut off the food a little bit later on in the day, which, you know, and the science suggests, and we've talked about it already that that's going to also help our sleep outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm so much happier. I'm so, (laughs) I'm I'm so much like shocker. And then of course, of course, my performance, my recovery, all of these, Mm -hmm. my strength, my ability to focus in the gym when I want to, you know, when I really want to punch out like a great workout is awesome when I've eaten. Yeah. Well, your um, workouts, let me just say your workouts are so inspiring. Like I love like following you on Instagram. I'm just like, yes, like I just like <laughs> you're so strong and you're you. so like you just wonderfully fit. And uh Thank yeah, you. it's just like super inspiring. So 
thank you for for sharing all of your your wisdom oh, and your workouts you. and show show my yeah. work. I got to show my work. Yeah, yeah, that's but, right. But but I feel like that's really important for women to know because I think a lot yeah. of times when there are new. And I, and I would, I would fast like a guy. It would be like the 12 to I eight or no, I was I the same, thing. Stephanie. I did yeah. the same thing. Yeah. For a long and time. Even just the long fasts, Like that's something I don't really do anymore either. I would go, mm-hmm. I was like strong, like bull. Like I'm going to go for yeah. like three days. days. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to three days. I'm going to do a 96 hour fast. And I, I, ju- I remember, I rem- remember thinking we were moving homes and I was in the middle of a five day fast and I'm like, what oh. am I doing? I, I am lifting boxes. I am exhausted. You know, if you want to think yeah. about stressor upon stressor, like moving one yeah. of the biggest stressors in life and then not eating. So um, I've actually moved my entire sort of, uh, we'll call it eating window mm. to uh, heavy load it in the morning. So I've had yeah. most of my calories by about two or three o'clock. And I feel great that way. Yeah. And there's a lot of great research, you know, looking at folks, late eaters versus early eaters and early eaters by far have better outcomes um, in terms of, uh, in terms of body composition and, and metabolic outcomes. So in improvements in, in insulin sensitivity, um, you know, even reversal of prediabetes. So, it, you know, timing really, really matters. And I think it's important for folks to know that time-restricted eating is more, has like a circadian component, whereas intermittent fasting is is kind of about caloric restriction. And yeah. that's really not what we're not, ta- we're not talking about that um, here, really. We're really talking about eating in line with circadian rhythms, which is essentially eating while the sun is up. And and, you know, I think for women in particular, biasing a bulk of the calories, you know, earlier in the day seems to really, based on the literature, seems to really be um, the best way to manage your weight and and most importantly, man- manage your metabolic health. So, um, yeah, so I think what you're doing is, is amazing. And I think for folks who are, you know, are, are, are still menstruating, you know, really understanding that, hey, during that, you know, after your, after ovulation and kind of in this two weeks leading up to menses, that is really not the time to fast. Like your body is already under, you know, we've got estrogen and progesterone are highest, right? There's like a lot of things happening in your body to kind of prepare for menses or if you're pregnant to, you know, be able to carry a child. Um, so either way, that time frame is um is 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 uh is really um metabolically expensive. So if we're layering more stress on top of that, um, that can have a lot of negative, uh, that can impact you negatively um, in that it might delay your period, might make your period come early, um, and then just the impact on your mood um, as well. So picking your times for for if you're doing more traditional fasting, you want to probably do it in the back end of, of menses or during the, or during ovulation even. Um, but, but yeah, the it, it's I'm I'm so happy that there's like starting you know more literature beginning to emerge and and a little bit more science and thoughtfulness around just women and and what it really means to kind of restrict calories and and when that might be good and when it might be um have a have a more negative um more do more more harm than good yeah and I'm so happy to hear that I mean I I talked about the exact same concepts in my book around fasting in the follicular phase of the first two weeks let's say mm-hmm. and if you pay yep. attention your appetite cues are actually you're less hungry generally uh, around, I don't like fasting right around ovulation because we don't want to prevent it, especially if we're trying to optimize for fertility. But you said, you know, sort of that late bleed week, like late Mm -hmm. into week one, sort of early into week two, let's say, uh, very good times for fast. We're just a bit more resilient for caloric restriction during that time. Um, And agreed, we're just, there's just a lot of 
there's there's a lot of metabol there's there's a lot of stuff happening in the luteal phase. We're just, mm-hmm. you know I, I the way that I sort of describe it to uh, my listeners is that you're building an organ. Like there's a lot you, there's a lot going on. You need substrate. You know, like yes. you know, we need we need amino acids. We need free yeah. fatty acids. We need glucose. Your right. body's already preferentially throwing those substrates mm-hmm. into the endometrial lining anyway, along with things like you know m- macro minerals, micro minerals, uh, mm-hmm. etc. So it's not really the time to restrict your food. Right. I don't, I don't like, uh, any type of fasting mm-hmm. other than sort of, you know, the fasting that happens while you naturally sleep, mm-hmm. um, yep. in, in that luteal phase, uh, really. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy to, we're aligned on that. And I love what you said about, um, I just wrote this down, uh, when we're sleep deprived that our mm-hmm. body doesn't feel safe. I thought that mm-hmm. was such a, I know that it's such a powerful, way to think about it, that you're eating to soothe, you're eating mm. in a way to soothe. And that, you know, you mentioned like emotional eating, that's what it is. It's like, a, it's a yeah. self-soothing technique, which, you know, when not applied properly can be, that mm-hmm. can have these devastating um, consequences. Yeah. So my question to you is, okay, so for if let's, let's talk about the 80, 20 rule. So 80% of the time we're doing things right. We are going to bed at the same time. Mm-hmm. We're waking at the same time. What if we know that there's going to be a big event? We have Mm-hmm. Uh, a wedding coming up, or there's a big, yep. you know, you're going to be on a di- in a different time zone, something like that. What are some things that we might think about uh, leading up to the big event? Because it's mm-hmm. probably if it's a big event, it's probably going to be in our calendars. We know what day mm-hmm. it is. We know mm-hmm. when our flights are. All the things. What are some things that we can prophylactically think about as mm-hmm. a way to uh, negate some of the negative consequences that can happen from a poor night's sleep and probably, mm-hmm. well, maybe this will lead us like into an alcohol. alcohol. Or, yeah. yeah. Like mm-hmm. there's going to be alcohol. Mm-hmm. There's going to be, tra- there's going to be time zone changes. There's maybe there's going to mm-hmm. be interruptions in your exercise routine. What are some things that we might think about for, you know, these one-off big events? I love this question so much um, because I, you know, I work with, um, you know, folks who are in, in a lot of my research is in these high stakes, high stress environments where they're going off, you know, to Afghanistan for a mission. <laughs> and what does that lead up into that mission look like? Or they're going into, you know, where they've, they're going to be, you know, on call for, you know, three days, you know, what does it look like in the lead up to that? Or, you know, we've got professional athletes who are going into, you know, um, to the Olympics and are traveling, like, what does the lead up look like? So, you know, these big events, it's really about doing as much as you can, as consistently as you can in the lead up to that event. So it's not surprising. So you just, what you don't want to do is go into that kind of more irregular erratic kind of schedule under recovered. Like that is what is really rushing, right? So if you can kind of go in as like healthy and firing on all cylinders, you're going to be able to, um, you know, uh, override like any of the negative effects of just two days of like really letting it all hang out. <laughs> so, um, so I think like thinking, you know, in the levers, you kind of, you know, touched them, like trying to be really regular. I mean, I think it all comes back to trying to minimize circadian disruption, right? Like we want to try to create as much circadian alignment as possible. So that's eating while the sun is up, by seeing a bulk of our calories earlier in the day, you know, ending, you know, finishing our last calorie a couple hours to three hours before we intend to sleep. It's called time-restricted eating, really important. Um, stabilizing when we go to bed and when we wake up, doing that as often as we can, getting a lot of water, you know, really trying to minimize alcohol intake, um, you know, putting nourishing, nutrient-dense, uh, you know, uh, food in our body, really important, you know, meeting our sleep need, you know, these are just like kind of the basic stuff, you know, and and I would say, you know, working out, getting exercise daily, movement, really, really important. Um, trying to, you know, pay attention to that sedentary 
behavior and, and, and not let that, you know, creep into the hours and hours over the course of the day. Um, you know, so it's just like a lot of the typical things, but going to this event, you just want to make sure that you're as robust as possible. So you can, you know, um, to your point, kind of mitigate the the negative effects of this disruption. And would you, would you change, so would you change the sleep? Like, let's, let's assume that the time, would you change the sleep patterning leading up to it? Would that be the same? Or would it be, would you trying to get more sleep than you normally would or? Yeah. So sleep extension can be, can be helpful uh, leading into events where you are going to be sleep deprived. So there's no question. A lot of folks though, can't uh, sleep longer, right? Because they've got these pronounced circadian rhythms, right? And they're used to getting up. So I would say if you can extend your sleep by maybe 30 minutes on either end, that would be the most I would really do. Um, The other way to kind of help with um, potential like sleep disruption is maybe getting in like a nap, you know, after lunch for 30 minutes, no more than 30 minutes. That could be another way just to kind of, you know, just reduce some of that stress accumulation throughout the day. And um, again, just kind of protect you a little bit from maybe shorter sleep in the future. Um, I would say if you're trying, if you're only going for like 48 hours, um, I would just, uh, on the, I would basically just try to get as much kind of sleep going into that. And then once you land, just kind of do whatever is normal is happening on that time zone. Um, if you are going to be staying for more than 48 hours, I would try to subtly shift your circadian rhythm so you can assimilate to that new time zone. So that would mean all the levers that we've been talking about, you just want to kind of subtly shift them um, kind of incrementally in the lead up to your departure. So you're more shifted toward whatever time zone you're going into. Um, and then once you're, when you're on the plane, I would, you know, eat in that time zone, view light in that time zone, restrict light based on that time zone. And then once you land, you know, do, you know, do everything in that time zone. So if you land at 7am, like get lots of light, eat breakfast, like just really like, all right, new time zone. Um, and then if you do, feel really, really sleepy, make sure it's no more than 30 minutes. Like you want to fall asleep when everyone in that time zone is falling asleep. So you have to really build that sleep pressure so you can, you can fall asleep. Do you know, it's a really, it's a very silly trick. I'm sure that there's no data behind it, but it works really well for me. It's just, it's just changing my clock on my watch. So if if I know, let's say if I'm going to Europe, let's say, and I know Mm -hmm. that it's like six hours ahead, seven hours, you know, whatever time I, I, I changed on my watch. So I'm like, Oh, it's, it's, it's already 7 PM there. Okay. So Mm -hmm. like, I got to get in my dinner, even though it's like two o'clock here or, you know, one o'clock hundred percent. And then when we're on the plane, I'm like, Oh my God, it's 12 o'clock at night. I got to get to bed. You know? So I, I just start thinking about it in that, that time zone. Mm -hmm. And it's a silly little thing, but it works so well for me. And when I don't change the time on my watch, I can't seem mm-hmm. to think in that new time zone. Like it's just yeah. that extra calculation in my head. So I love I that. Know. Yeah. That's an that's awesome useful. hack. Oh, for sure. Like, and that's the whole, yeah. You just want to try to do again, if your goal is to kind of really assimilate to the new time zone, you want to start to adopt those behaviors. That said, you don't want to kind of, you still want to be able to kind of, uh, unless you can really, you know, black out your curtains, eye mask and like sleep during like what you would be sleeping, like in that normal time zone. Um, if you can't do that, it's better just to kind of stay in your own routine. Again, be as robust kind of going into that travel um, as you can, and then just kind of adapt on the fly, um, you know, 
once you get there. Let's talk a little bit about alcohol because there's going to be, you know, just piggybacking on the, you're going to have a big night out. We don't, you don't even need to tame, you know, change time zones. It could be, you know, I was, I got married this last summer and I had a glass, I had one glass of champagne because I thought it was momentous enough to justify, and I didn't even finish it. I had a couple sips because I don't really like alcohol, but let's talk about, I thought I should probably have some champagne on my wedding. Um, let's talk about the, let's, let's talk about, especially when you're doing cheers, you know, like you're going to just look like the crazy person. that's like, no, I'm not drinking this poison. Um, let's talk about alcohol and its effects on, I'd like to talk about sleep, because mm-hmm. I've, I've, I have sort of come out with a little bit of blowback. Um, I'm a bit of a, maybe I'm a bit of a hard ass and you can certainly c- redirect me if I'm being too hard here. I don't actually see any justification for alcohol. It's very mm-hmm. difficult. Maybe a wedding, uh, birth of a, you know, if there's a birth of a grandson or something, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, these are, I don't actually see any justification for regular consumption of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I remember a few years back, I think it was David Sinclair's lab had published something and sort of the media took it and ran with this idea that um, red wine has these, all of these uh, sort of heart enhancing benefits. Yeah, it's like, yeah. uh, yes, resveratrol. And so yeah. the amount, but the amount of wine you would need to consume. Yeah, it's in like order- four, four <laughs> bottles of wine or something. I mean, it's just insanity. Like, like you're going to yeah. kill yourself. You are going yeah. to, you are not going to get, you are going to get fatty alcohol, liver disease. So um, let, let's talk a little bit about alcohol um, mm. because typically when alcohol is consumed, again, coming back to the circadian mm-hmm. biology, it, you know, hopefully yeah. it's not being consumed in the morning. It's most typically being consumed in the later hours of the day. It's a nightcap with your husband or it's dinner with friends, mm. let's say. Um, and so you're usually consuming it after dinner or with dinner, let's say, and that's very close to bedtime. That's two, mm. maybe three hours from bedtime. What yeah. does that, how does that affect our sleep? And then I'd like to also understand um, sort of what's happening. If you can, if you can speak to sort of what's happening metabolically, because we know that the liver mm. is going to sort of prioritize metabolism of the, of the alcohol over, over any of its other many processes that it, that it you know, oversees. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, just, I, you know, I have the benefit of seeing like just huge amounts of data, right? And there is no question that the one single behavior that is most crushing to sleep and most crushing to markers of recovery is alcohol consumption. And the closer alcohol consumption gets to bed, the more deleterious effect it has on your sleep and your recovery. And I think what some folks will say, oh, I get into deeper stages of sleep, but um, your sleep becomes so fragmented that your the quality of your your sleep is totally compromised and you essentially don't get any REM. So while it might make you fall, feel like you're getting into deeper sleep, you know, being unconscious and actually experiencing quality sleep are two totally different things. Um, so it's not it, real it, sleep. It's not true sleep. No, yeah. no, 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 it, it isn't. Um, so to your point, like all the restorative and regenerative effects that happen during sleep um, are compromised when you have alcohol in your system because alcohol will get prioritized. Like your body has to deal with the alcohol in your system. As a result, all of the regenerative kind of um, uh, functions that are happening during sleep physically and and cognitively, um, you know, during soul sleep and REM literally aren't happening, right? Because your body is having to process and digest alcohol. And that's why we see such high heart rate during sleep and low heart rate variability. Um, and this is just 
you're in a sympathetic state, um, which again is the state where you're not actually um, restoring. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and as a result, like you're not helping your recovery next day. Um, and, and when you don't sleep, you know, you're not releasing human growth hormone, which is, uh, you know, be protective of, of, you know, for, of her mental illness and injury. And, you know, you are not getting, um, you know, the requisite REM sleep. So your executive function and mental control next day are going to be compromised. Um, so it has like, just, I think to your point, like there is no literature that suggests a moderate amount of alcohol is, is in any way, you know, putting deposit in your bank account. Like that is not happening. <laughs> it's, it's definitely um, a withdrawal for sure. Yeah, it is a withdrawal. Yeah. And it's, and I think like, you know, but and it's just weighing the, the, the cost and the benefit, right? Like if you're doing it a couple of times a month, yeah, like that's not a big deal. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if you're having a few drinks a week, like that is going to compound and have a negative effect. Um, and it's, it's going to impact, you know, your sleep mostly. Um, but then there's all sorts of other things happening in terms of just, um, diversion of resources, you know, having to, to deal with the, the, the diet, you know, the, the metabol, you know, metabolizing alcohol is, is just so costly on the system. What I, I heard, I was surprised when I was researching, um, in preparation for our conversation, I was listening to your conversation on the Woot podcast and I, um, I'll, I'll find the episode and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, but you were citing a study around consuming alcohol, even six hours before sleep and that having a negative impact. Like we sort of started off this conversation saying, oh, it's like two or three hours before dinner. And you might say, well, it's probably gonna take about an hour or two to sort of metabolize the alcohol. But in, in this particular podcast you were citing, I don't know if you remember it or not, but, Mm -hmm. or if you can speak to this, but six hours before going to bed, like alcohol consumption will still have sort of a blast radius. It'll still have this negative impact um, on your sleep, which I found, I I found that fascinating that it was such a, such a large timeline. I wasn't aware of that large of a Delta prior to, prior to hearing you say that. Yeah. You know, what's really fascinating and yeah, and there's, there's lots of good literature, but, um, but what's really interesting. I, I look at, if I have like one glass of Prosecco, it takes, and I have, we have this like real time heart rate and heart rate variability data and it, it comes through in our stress monitor. And it basically is an algorithm that's looking at heart rate and heart rate, heart rate variability continuously and maps it on a scale of zero to three. So you can kind of see like where your stress is throughout the day and just give you insight into kind of what might be causing stress. Well, when I have alcohol, my, like my baseline stress is like 1.7 ish generally. Um, when I have alcohol, I'm almost at a three. With one glass of which Prosecco. Which is the one glass of Prosecco. And it takes four hours to get back below two. Four mm-hmm. hours. So like if I go to bed with that one glass of Prosecco, like I'm hovering in a three. Like I can't even drop into REM or slow wave sleep. That's crazy. So it's just like that. The the liver basically, it, it can't, that detoxification process is just so expensive (laughs) that it like, it's like all these processes like just can't happen simultaneously. So I think that's, that's why, yeah, alcohol is just, is like, it's really crushing. Just like one glass of Prosecco takes four hours to clear my body. Imagine if I'm having, you know, a couple drinks an hour. 
And you do that two or three times a week for two or three times a week, 10, 20 years. Yeah. 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 So it's like you, you basically go throughout the day where we're supposed to be alert. We're supposed to be stressed, you know, sympathetic activations, like pretty normal. Right. And then we have two drinks before we go to bed. Now all of a sudden, like by advice, like, oh shit. Okay, here we go. You know? And I'm like, just revving at this rate where, where, yeah, like it, it just like your body can't do anything else. It's just the reality of it. So let, let's sort of pan this out a little bit. You've had some alcohol. Uh, maybe you're someone who has a nightcap with your, you know, you're trying to take the edge off of whatever stressful day you've had. Um, and we've demonstrably been able to show in this discussion and the research that you've, you've been able to accumulate it, that you're not, it's not actual sleep. It's very fragmented to your point. You don't have the, the REM sleep that you should be. So you would be in theory and not just theory, but in reality, you're racking up sleep depth, right? So you are racking yes. up lack of sleep that you should be having. Is there, mm-hmm. is there a way in that, can somebody make up that debt that they are incurring? Or is that, yeah. is it just something that um, sort of gets washed out with time? Like how can we, mm-hmm. how can we rectify that? Yeah. I mean, you, you can't really make up for lost biological sleep, right? So all the genes that are supposed to be turning on and turning off, like, you know, that, that all that doesn't happen, right? If, if you're, if you've got alcohol in your system. So, um, we can't ever make that up, right? That sleep is lost essentially. And I, and I, what we see in our research is that, you know, if you are not getting the sleep that you need, right. And you're accumulating what we call kind of sleep debt, sleep debt for every 45 minutes of sleep debt that you get, that basically results in a 10% decline in next day executive function. So you're 10% dumber with every 45 minutes of sleep debt you accrue. Good grief. So 10%? Yeah, so it doesn't, 10%. So this is measured via and back and Stroop. So this is a year-long study that we did with McKenzie CEOs. Um, yeah, it is wild. And we haven't published it yet, but um, but we've talked about the results. But you know, so there's prelim data, but, um, but That's absolutely wild. fascinating, that right? It's wild. wild, right? I know. And I, and I think what's like so sneaky is like, we can't actually perceive our own cognitive, physical, and emotional declines generally, right? Like, and, and the other study that's wild is that we looked at sleep debt in these, you know, really hard charging CEOs. And we basically, we had all of their direct reports were basically, um, filling out a survey daily um, on how psychologically safe they felt. So there's like, you know, Dr. Amy Edmondson, a renowned researcher from Harvard, who is like the godmother of psychological safety. And we know that psychological safety correlates with, you know, more revenue generated. Um, When you feel psychologically safe, you can kind of bring your true self to the table. And that's where people feel, you know, the, the happiest and the healthiest and and what creative. we saw is that yeah. mm-hmm. creative and yeah, and just like, just, yeah. Um, so what we saw is that for every 45 minutes of sleep debt that these CEOs accrued, um, their direct reports felt less psychologically safe. Their, and employee, their employee, employees. Their employees. Their employees. Wow. So imagine, you know, take that same kind of theory and bring it into your home environment. Like what if I, and, and as CEOs, they're trying to be, they're trying to keep it together, right? Like they have the sleep debt, but they're trying to be as great as they can for their direct reports. But what happens when I go home is just like, you know, imagine your household not feeling psychologically safe around you because you're carrying sleep debt. So that alcohol that you're having at night is creating this sleep debt invariably, which is like 
isn't just impacting you to be very clear, right? Like that sleep that that you accrue is going to impact every single person you love and care about. Like you will be less patient. They just how you hold, like, and even if the CEO isn't, you know, is really doing everything they can, they're like, all right, I know I'm tired, but I'm going to just do my best to kind of bring, you know, put my best face forward. Like how their direct reports are perceiving, just even how they hold their face, right? Like I can't perceive my own declines, right? Get back to my original point. Like, um, as a result, like I can't control like how I'm emoting. I can't control, like, I can't even perceive that these like kind of negative, um, uh, emotions are, are getting transferred to the people around me. There's these nonverbal cues that they're picking up on. It's like, it's just so kind of scary to me, but, but also like this unbelievable opportunity for leaders or anyone who's in charge of anyone, whether that's a parent, like, I don't care who you are, you're interacting with people. I don't care if it's like the, you know, the, the cash register person at CVS, like she, I don't know, she doesn't deserve it. (laughs) Like my, my sleep dead baggage. Right. Um, so I don't know. I just feel like it's like this responsibility we kind of have as human beings to like, yeah, just like get it together. <laughs> I I think that that is so powerful for everyone, you know, and, and uh, my mind, of course, is on on my as a mother, like, how do I show up when I've mm. had a really bad night to my kids? And what are they what are they making of that? Are they internalizing that and saying, am I, you know, gosh, I'm going to cry now. But like, are they trying to say like, oh, my gosh, I'm such a bad kid. Like, that's why mommy's mad at me, something like that. Right. So it is really worth thinking about protecting our sleep and really taking it seriously. Like, I think that Mm -hmm. it's one of those things like, oh, yeah, doc, I get it. I should drink more. I should sleep more. Like, wouldn't it be nice? But it's it's it, yes, it would be nice and you should do it. And you should try to figure out strategies in your family or in your, you know, in the people that can support you in mm-hmm. raising a family where mm-hmm. you can find sleep. And so, you know, the naps that you said, I think that's really great. I've, we, yeah. I've, I've had discussions with people who talk about taking naps. Um, you know, I've heard up to 90 minutes, no longer. I've heard no more mm-hmm. than 20 minutes, but you know, I think yeah. there's some, there's some, you know, bio-individuality there. I, I, temp- I sure. typically like, like 10, 15 minutes is like a little mm-hmm. siesta. I like to take midday yeah. if I've had a rough, you know, let's say I had a rough night for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, last question. Uh, so we'll end off with a banger, um, <laughs> uh, in terms of sleep. Um, where do sex and orgasms, um, fall mm-hmm. on the, uh, improving, uh, sex, uh, improving, sorry, sleep scores. Do we, is it better at night? Is it an afternoon mm. delight? Is it, you know, sex mm. at dawn? What do we like? Do we, you know, some people will say, you know, good sleep starts in the morning. So is it like, should we have sex in the morning or is it in the, in the evening? Like what, is there any literature? Mm. Do you have literature mm. on that? Do you okay. have anything to say on that? I think you should have sex at both times. So morning <laughs> and night. <laughs> all day long, um, actually. Yeah. Yeah. All day long. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it's highly individual, right? Um, but um, we do see sex as a, a sleep-promoting behavior. Um, of course, it's consensual with a partner. Uh, those are the data that we've been able to look at. And uh, we do see that there are um, uh, folks get into deeper stages of sleep and seem to sleep better um, when they're having sex within a, with a partner. And basically how we look at this the data. Is orgasm kind of or just sex? Is it This orgasm? is just reporting sex. So we don't know okay. if they're actually, con- you know, if climaxing. they're actually climaxing. Um, uh, I'm sure the guys, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We've done podcasts on that too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so yeah. So 
we don't we don't know that piece, but we do know that there is something really powerful about engaging in sex with a partner prior to sleep. When um, again, we kind of control for for alcohol and you know, uh, it, kind of basically looking at it, is it around their typical bedtime or not? So basically, because a lot of the effects would wash out if they're having sex at 3 a.m., for example. So we basically just kind of try to control some of the confounders and really look at our, okay, you know, typical bedtime, you know, are they having sex or they're not having sex and how is that impacting sleep? And we're able to see, in fact, that sleep is, a, the sex is a, a sleep promoting behavior, which is really cool. And it, it doesn't matter what time, it, like, so we're controlling for the, you know, the 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. time when like, exactly, all yeah, that activity, where you're just, but yeah. all through the day, all of those things seem like if it's morning, evening, or afternoon. These are just sex. Prom- it's just any sleep promoting behavior throughout the day, whether it's, you know, morning, you know, midday or evening. So whenever folks are reporting, it seems to have a positive effect on getting into deeper stages of sleep. Great. That's good to know. And then do we see yeah. a difference? Do we see any sexual dimorphisms there in terms of, because there's different neurochemicals that are released men and women, right? So we, we see, mm-hmm. I know there's oxytocin. I mean, both, you know, right. Uh, we both release oxytocin, you know, post orgasm. Mm. Anyway, uh, do we see any sex differences between, mm. um, in terms of uh, sleep promoting behavior, at least? So my hypothesis here is that guys probably fall asleep. So their sleep onset latency. So how quickly they fall asleep is probably uh, uh, faster uh, than women. So, and this is the typical you know, women like to talk after sex. Guys like to sleep after sex. Mm-hmm. Right. The so coitus cuddles. The poise, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. but that said, we we can't actually measure when you intend to fall asleep. So, right. um, so this is like a tough one for us to to be able to kind of vet in the literature and or vet in a study. Um, but I, I want to do that study and um at some point, uh, because I'm really curious. But my hypothesis would be uh, given what we know about um uh oxytocin and and just like how um, men feel sleepy after sex, I would imagine they probably fall asleep faster than, than women. Um, so yeah, that'd well, be, I want like you to only, do that study yeah. as well. And I want you to come back on the show and I want you to discuss it because I think that that's, it's so interesting because we mm. do, um, just with many of the women that I've spoken to a lot of people, mm. like they want to feel safe, right? It's that, that we've been talking yeah. a lot about safety, sort of all through yeah. the conversation. The nervous that, system and recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Like that sort of bonding that you feel, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not, you know, I mean, as you said, like it's a consensual, you know, hopefully it's a consensual, mm-hmm. uh, course, relationship yeah. and all, all of those variables have been controlled for. But I think that there's this, um, there's a sex difference between men and women in terms of, especially with, with sex, um, is that feeling safe, like men just sort mm-hmm. of, yeah, they just really become quite flaccid, right? They just go yeah. right to sleep, right? So yeah. uh, it's very interesting to see the differences between, uh, between men and women there as well. So mm-hmm. that'll be a very interesting study. I, I, uh, yeah. let me know when that's done and we'll, we'll have you on the show again. <laughs> Perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a, um, you know, I think that, uh, sex behavior is definitely changing, you know, with um, just smartphones in bed and, you know, like this just yeah. like a, a whole new dynamic, I think, that has probably um, some really interesting uh, effects on our physiology and our psychology and um, and just how we evolve actually as human beings. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting space, I think. I feel like our time together has just 
just gone in an instant. Uh, we've just oh, we've just I racked know. up ninety minutes together. Um, Crazy. Just looking at the time here, I would love to have you. Uh, we didn't even get into. I wanted to talk. There was a couple of things I wanted to um, touch on, so we'll definitely have to come bring you back for part two. I know um, training. And I know we didn't even, even get some recovery. Training. I know, uh, I know, but that's okay. Uh, but this was such a good, this was part one yeah. of what will be uh, a two-parter. Um, if people wanted to follow your work, some of the research that mm. you're publishing, um, I know that you've co-published with you know, some very mm. prestigious labs and your, your ongoing research. You. Uh, where, can, where can people find you and interact with you and tell them all the places? Yeah. So I'm trying to, I have, you know, my Instagram is like not very mature um, or, you know, like I, I you know, I haven't really figured that out entirely. Like I try to, I try to post the research. I try to th- post things that I think people are would like and are important. But um, yeah. So, Kristen, um, I need to look at my handle. Sorry, <laughs> it has some numbers um, on it. I know that. I'll, it does, I'll make sure. It I'll does. make sure that it's, it's in the show notes. It'll be a click. It's, it's my, like Kristen, Holmes. my kid's birthday. Yeah, Aww, yeah. Kristen cool. underscore Holmes twenty one twenty six. Yeah, and then um, and then LinkedIn is another place where I you know I haven't posted anything in months, but I, I like if something big happens, I definitely post there. But but Instagram probably the stories like if you know we publish something or you know like I'll throw it in there and I'll if I have time I'll do like a a post the stories the quick one. Um, so yeah, I, there's lots of I put in a lot of like good nuggets um, there. I mean one one nugget in there is like actually novel research that is gonna I think blow the space away um, that I'm super excited about and it's the relationship between um, it's sleep wake timing. We basically have been able to to f- see like down to the minute we can predict your. Uh, your recovery next day measured by heart rate variability and resting heart rate. So basically what? with that every, is incredible. <laughs> I know with every 10 minutes of variation, you'll have a 12% chance of an abnormal HRV at 30 minutes. The odds increase by 42%. Now this is in freaking 18 to 23 year olds, collegiate athletes, wow. that amount of variability is that disruptive. So just imagine a 40 year old experiencing 30 minutes of disruption. So we're going to run those analysis across every single age bucket. Um, but this is a huge finding to be able to like down to the minute, be able to see like um, this degradation and heart rate and heart rate variability. Fabulous. But I post okay. stuff like that. So <laughs> yes. And all of my, yeah. so there's like, we, uh, this is, you are in a, you know, nerd army unite. You are in the safe, <laughs> safe nerd space here to talk about all of that stuff because all of my listeners Amazing. will gobble that up. Okay, so I'll make sure that I awesome. find that post as well, and that'll be in the show notes. Kristen, it was such a delight. I will make sure. I cannot wait for us to meet in person. Maybe me in Boston, you in Toronto, oh, or somewhere, some I conference somewhere. Um, and we'll, I definitely want you on for a part two if you were game for that because I think we didn't even get to exercise. I had I, we didn't I even get to cold and hot. I we didn't get to you know thermal uh, manipulation ah. as well. Yeah, I know. Sleep, great, sleep is such a good sleep is such an important topic. Great. Foundation, mm-hmm. foundation for mm-hmm. uh, for my listeners. Thank you so much for your time and focus. I really, really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's amazing. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. 
In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. Mm-hmm.